morning. It's been a little bit of a trying morning for me. I ran out of gas on the way here. It's interesting, I'm preaching on the book of Ruth, if you want to turn your Bibles to the book of Ruth, and it's, especially the first part is largely about trials. The book of Ruth, right after the book of Judges, an interesting, very interesting book placed in an interesting place in the history of God's people. And I think we can learn, there is much to learn from this book, from the actions, from the people, and from God's providence in it. If you would, bow with me. Father, I I thank you, God, a beautiful morning you've given us and how there's always sunshine on the other side of storms. And I pray that spiritually speaking today, if any of us are in a storm, that we would learn from this book, that we would learn from this passage that you've given us, um, that we would learn from this history of how you've worked in your people and how you always are working in your people. God, that we would see that there's light on the other side of a storm, that we would look, fix our eyes on Christ and his hope and his salvation, and that this, this passage, as we go through this book, Lord, that um, Christ would be exalted and that you would take this man and you would grant me humility with wisdom, to proclaim your message with boldness and accuracy, and that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, I was thinking as we sang, um, I remember hearing Todd Friel talk one time, and he was going, he was actually playing, it's on his radio show, he was playing the clips of a person's testimony. And um, the person had been through all kinds of trials. I mean, it was just amazing. And he kept, he, he would break in and he would go. He would say, God paints beautiful pictures. And I'm looking out here at a lot of faces. And having known some of you for a long time and having known some of you for shorter times, I can see God painting these beautiful, wonderful pictures in your lives. The amazing thing about it is sometimes the story goes through rough parts. But it's those rough parts that make the other side so glorious. It's the rough times that makes the the message of hope so much better, so much sweeter, and that is precisely what the book of Ruth is, that's what it is. So, I've enjoyed it, I've been studying the the book, and I would encourage you this, go home this week, next week, it'll be another month, you have a month, read through the entire book in one setting, it doesn't take long, Um, read through it, read through it more than once. It is. It, it will bless you. I promise you, it will bless you. This book will. But to give a little bit of background so that we understand what's going on, there's not a lot of background given by the book, and there's not a lot of historical background, but there's enough that we can get a grasp of where we are in history and what's going on. Um, so the author is unknown. We don't know exactly who wrote it. There's many who believe, many scholars who believe or suggest that it's written by Samuel, the prophet. Can't say that for sure. I definitely wouldn't doubt it, but I can't say that for sure. We do know the location. There's two places mentioned in this book, and they're both mentioned in the very first first verse of the book. The first place is Moab. 
And so just a little background of Moab. If you remember, Moab originated back in Genesis with a guy named Lot. It was an incestuous relationship. Do you remember the story? It was right after um, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Lot's daughters got him drunk and took advantage of that and had children. And Moab was one of the children born of one of those daughters. And that was the beginning of the nation of Moab. So it was formed in sin. Um, Then they quickly became an enemy to Israel. The the King Balak, which opposed Israel um, earlier, was a Moabite. That was Moab that was opposing Israel. They oppressed Israel greatly during the time of the judges, which is this time that we're talking about. Uh, Moab was oppressing Israel during that time. Saul fought against Moab later and won. And um, they they were a nation completely pagan, completely engulfed in idolatry and pagan worship. And because of their idolatry, because of their gross idolatry, God cursed them. Over and over he cursed Moab. Kind of give you an idea of where, who this, what this country is like. The other place that's mentioned is Bethlehem. And that's a name that's very familiar, of course. It's the birth of our Lord. It's the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Um, about a, I think probably of seven to ten day journey away from Moab in that time on horse or on foot. Uh, it's also the site for Rachel's tomb. That's where Jacob was traveling through and Rachel, or that's where Jacob was when Rachel died and that's where she was buried. Um, the name itself means the bread of life or the bread. That'll become important later. And here's where you start to see God's providence. You start to see God's beautiful pictures painted you can't you know allegories are an interesting thing we can make up allegories and there's always flaws in them when god makes allegories he makes them happen in real life and then he uses that allegory and he paints a picture of something else and that's what the book of ruth is as we go through that you'll see it so it's no accident that this is happening in bethlehem it's no accident that this is happening the very same place where jesus is going to be born that is precise strategic by our Father, by the sovereign God. As Micah prophesies, Micah 5, 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. It's a special place. It has a special purpose. And, and this is no accident that this happens. The time frame, the only thing we know for sure is that it is during the period of the judges. And that is a period from when Joshua died, after the children of Israel had moved into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, Joshua died. And from that period until Saul was crowned king, it was this period is known as the judges, roughly 400 years of this time. Um, it's probably likely that this passage of Ruth comes towards the end of that period. But we can't, I mean, it would be difficult to know for sure, but it's definitely in the latter half. Um, and so this period of Judges, what do we know about it? We're right there in Ruth. If you look back right there in the very last verse of the 21st chapter of Judges, it says, In those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that describes the period of Judges. That describes this time period. It was a, it was a dark time for the nation of Israel. But as we go through this book, as we read this book, the book of Ruth gives us light in the midst of darkness and hope in the midst of despair. Let's take a look at the first verse. In the days when the judges ruled, 
there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So we talked about the time when the judges ruled. It was a dark time for Israel. Over and over, when you read through the book of Judges, over and over it says they forsook, forsook the Lord. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshiped false idols, etc., etc. It's all through the book of Judges. It would get, and it would go down, down, extremely low. Then God would send a judge, and the judge would raise up and kind of straighten things out, and there would be a period of time, and then right back down they would do evil in, in the sight of the Lord. And it was this repetition for 400 years where there was just this darkness over the land of Egypt. And four different times, we read it in verse 25, four different times it says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in the sight of their own eyes. What was right in their own eyes. Which, if you haven't noticed, that's what men do. That's why we have laws. That's why we have people to enforce the laws. Because left to himself, man does what's right in his own eyes. Amazing thing about that is every man sees it different. They have no problem taken from you, but whenever somebody takes from them, that's wrong. Right? I mean, Paul just talked a lot about logic this morning. Man is an illogical creature. I mean, it's just a fact. It's part of our nature. Part of our sin, fallen nature is selfishness, which is illogical. But it is, it is part of it. And that's what was happening very clearly in the nation of Israel. So just to kind of back up, they had 400 years of bondage. 400 years in Egypt in bondage, and they started to cry out unto the Lord. What did God do? He sends them a deliverer. He sends them Moses. He takes them out of Egypt. It's not very long into that journey they start whining and complaining. Right? Not very long in that journey they doubt God who just opened the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land. And they send in spies to go into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey that they had been promised. And what do they do? They get scared. We can't take them. Your God just opened the sea, and you walked across, and now you can't take them. So what? wandered around 40 years in the wilderness. Then they go in. Joshua. Joshua takes them in. Um, we heard, it was a Wednesday night, I think, we heard about Jericho just a couple weeks ago. The walls fall down. Then we hear about, um, as, as they go on, you read on, they're just taking this city by city by mir- different types of miracles. God moves in, and now they're dwelling in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. And now we're going to get 400 years of confusion, darkness. There was no king, so everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Now, did they have a guide to follow at this point? Yeah, the law was given. There was no reason to do what was right in their own eyes because and that's what the judges would try to do is bring them back to the law but what what is the they didn't have a king so why why did they not have a king who was supposed to be their king look at look at first samuel 8 first samuel 8 verse 7 says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, so from the day they left Egypt, even until, this is Samuel talking after this period of Judges, they forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also doing to you. They had rejected God as their king. God had given them a theocracy. It was a government where he was in charge. He had given them a law. And they rejected him as king. Over and over they rejected him as king. And that's why they're in this period. That's why they're in this state that they're in, doing what's right in their own eyes. Because they've rejected the authority of God. It's quite simple, really. 
it's happening all over the world today. It's happening here today, even though we haven't been given a theocracy. The reason we're crumbling, the reason we're falling apart, the reason we're fighting amongst ourselves, the reason we can't decide on what laws to make and what laws to uphold and how to uphold them is because we've rejected God as king as a society. And what followed that? It says, in the days the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The land that was promised, that was flowing with milk and honey. It's a metaphor for being extremely productive land. It was the promised land. It was some of the best fertile ground in the world. And it has a famine now. Bethlehem, the house of bread, was lacking bread. And why was, why was there a famine? Deuteronomy 11:17 says, "The anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you." Here's where we have to. Um, I think we have a hard time picturing this. We have a hard time understanding famine where we live in the time that we live. We don't know how long the famine lasted, but I don't think in our current state we can understand what famine was like. Maybe if there's survivors of the Great Depression, they could have a handle on this. Um, The Dust Bowl, I don't know if there's very many people left that lived through the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma, but I think they could grasp a true biblical famine. But here we don't. It's a different world we live in. It's a different, we've been blessed as a culture. But that doesn't mean we won't. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean we won't. I mean, I personally have never experienced seeing the very last of the crumbs being eaten and no harvest in sight. Have you? Have you ever eaten a last bite and thought thought like Elijah and the widow said, we're going to eat this and then we're going to die because there's nothing else? That's what was going on. I've never experienced that severe pain of hunger that they no doubt were experiencing. There's people in this world that are. They're experiencing it now. They could relate to this story more than we can And the pain was more than they were willing to bear, and they moved. So the famine comes, and Elimelech and Naomi move, and they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. One expositor said, but how can a change of front help us understand the circumstances? If food is scarce in the promised land where God has pledged himself to feed us, Is it likely that better things will be found in a land upon which, as we shall see, his curse is resting? It was a mistake. The the answer to a famine is not to run from the famine, especially when the famine is a judgment of God. Do you think the judgment of God can't follow you? The famine may be a blessing from God. As we're going to see, it actually was all of this in God's beautiful pictures as he paints is all coming together to make this masterpiece. But they moved to Moab. Psalm 68, God says, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. I cast my sandal. It's nothing but a foot bowl. It's there to wash the dust off of, off of his feet. That's what God thinks of Moab, and that's where they went. And so they left the land where God promised to care for them. They left the people who God has claimed as his own and turned to his footpot. And we can sit here and we can be very critical of Elimelech, and we can be very critical of Naomi, but I'm telling you, we do the same all the time. Every day, don't we? We go through a spiritual famine. We go through a dry time. 
and we don't feel as close to God as we once were. Has anybody experienced that? Yeah, I have. You get saved, and there's this glorious feeling. There's this, this amazing, I mean, the presence of the Holy Spirit for the first time. Your eyes are open, and you're, you're excited, you're on cloud nine, and everything's just amazing, and you think this is how it's going to be forever, and then what happens? Trials come. Life continues. People don't understand your excitement. And we go through that. Our prayers seem harder than they once were. They seem to not get any higher than the ceiling. We don't feel like praying. We don't feel like reading the Scripture. Well, sometimes we don't even feel like we're saved. Praise God, our salvation is not based on our feelings. Or we would all be in trouble. And it's not based on our actions. And it's not based on our prayers. Our salvation is based on God, on Jesus Christ alone. So we can praise Him for that. So we're having these times where we don't feel like we're saved. We don't feel like we're spiritual. We're in this famine. And so what do we do? We turn to the footpot. We turn to the wash basin. We seek satisfaction in everything but Christ. And you can put, plug in there whatever it is that you put in there, and it's all basically the same. It's all just might as well wash your feet in it because it's not going to get any more satisfaction than a foot pot. And it could be things that there's nothing wrong with. It could be things that are actually good. Right? But if you're turning to it for your satisfaction, apart from Christ, it's a footpot. Right? I mean, even, even things that look spiritual, they could look spiritual to us. We could turn to work in the church for our satisfaction. Attending church. Things that are required of us. Things that are to- we are commanded to do. But if that's where your satisfaction is, and it's not Christ, it's, not, it's going to come up lacking. But that's not usually how we do it. Right? We usually turn to something farther from the truth. Right? We turn to worldly politics, or to the internet, or to the TV, to movies, video games, Sports, hunting, fishing, whatever it is. And it takes our mind off of our problems and it takes our mind off of our spiritual lacking nature for a little bit. And that's what we turn to. And we will wind up in a, it will wind up in a land of the Moabites if we don't watch out for that. So let's see. Let's go on. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the wife of his, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech. The name Elimelech means "My God is King." Yet he forgot this, and he left the place of his king. And he left the people of the king and dwelt among the king's enemies. Naomi, the name means pleasantness. But yet we'll see God deal bitterly with her because of this, because of the straying from from the king. But then we will once again see God fulfill her name of pleasantness. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So it, it's a family of four moving that we're told. It's a family of four. Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons move away from the promised land because of famine. They move into the land of Moabites, the land of Moab, the heathen nation, the idol-worshiping nation, to fill their bellies 
And now we see the bitterness come. We see it start with Naomi. Elimelech died. Doesn't give us any reason, doesn't give us any sickness, how it happened, whatever happened. We just know that he died. And we would do well to remember his name, Elimelech. My God is king. My God is the sovereign king. That word sovereign, it's an interesting word. We have, we call kings today sovereign. People will use that word, but they're not sovereign. They don't have complete, total control. We call, the Chickasaw Nation calls itself a sovereign nation. And I know what they mean by that. It is, they are not under the control, it's a separate nation, but they're not sovereign. The word sovereign signifies complete and total control. There is nobody that has that other than God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And that's who Elimelech was named after, was my God is the sovereign king. And rather than trust in his sovereignty and stay where he was supposed to, stay in his homeland, he moved. And now we're seeing that sovereignty work throughout all these all these decisions. You remember when Joseph was sold into slavery? It was, I mean, when you go back and read that and you really start to picture what was going on there and you really try to understand what was happening, his brothers sold him into slavery. They wanted to kill him, but there's just like, there was just this line, they, they, a couple of them wasn't going to cross. So they sold him into slavery and years later, when they were reunited, what did he say? He said, don't worry. They were scared he would kill him. He had the power to kill him. He could have easily had them put to death and there would have been no thoughts about it by any man. But he said, don't worry. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. And so we see with some of this working, um, God works through our mistakes. Do you remember when Jesus and his disciples were on the boat and the great storm came? And they all they were all scared to death. They thought they were going to die. They're, and where was Jesus? He was asleep, asleep in the boat. And they would go and they wake him and they're like, do you not care that we perish, right? What are you doing? This storm is going to kill us. And he calmed the storm with the word of his mouth, right? He calmed the storm. So the question to ask yourself here with the disciples, and the question to ask yourself in this situation with Elimelech and Naomi, the question with those disciples, were they any safer once the storm calmed? No. Why? Because our king is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. You don't die until he says die. And you don't breathe unless he says breathe. So they were as safe in the midst of that storm with Jesus on the boat as they were after he calmed the storm. Why? Because it was not in his providence for them to die. Naomi and Elimelech were as safe. Look, look, look what happened. Elimelech moves. Why? To save himself. Well, if we stay here, we'll starve. And what happened? He moves to Moab and he dies. You can't escape. You can't run from that. Look at verse 4. These took Moabite wives, the same of the one. Wait, did I skip verse 3? Oh, she was left with her two sons. And these two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. So now Elimelech has died, and Naomi remains there with her sons. So that shows us that it wasn't just Elimelech's decision. Naomi was on board with this. Naomi moved in agreement because once he died, she stayed. She remained there um, in Moab. And now her sons had grown up, at least partially in this country, in this time. And now they're taking these wives of this heathen nation. And so now we see not only um, 
Did they, I mean, we know that they moved to avoid the famine, and maybe that was the only reason. We don't know the full reason that we know that much. But evidently, they become comfortable in their surroundings. And, and they, at the least, they become comfortable, and likely, they actually became where they enjoyed it. Kind of like Lot sitting in the gate. We can read in Peter that it vexed Lot's righteous soul what was going on, but yet he still remained and he still dealt with it. And it was engulfing him. And that's what happened here with uh, Naomi and her sons. But then in verse 5, it is incredible. It doesn't give us a lot of detail. But in verse 5, and both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And we're not, again, we're not told how they died. Um, It certainly seems that they died young, at a young age, prematurely from what was normal. They didn't have children. So we're not told how they died, but we do see the bitterness of Naomi in its fullness here. She's in a foreign land away from the protection and guidance of her God's law. See, the law of God had provisions in place for these kind of things. But she had moved away so that she had no provisions. She had no protection from God, no no guidance from the law in this land of foreign... In the, in the foreign land. And so now you have three women without provisions or a way to make a living. And the grief of losing a husband and two sons in apparently probably a short period of time would be plenty on its own. But now she's faced with the fact that in that time period, it was very difficult for a woman to provide, even for themselves. It was not um, well accepted, right? And it was certainly not set up for that to work. They were it, this, the culture in Moab and in Israel was that the husbands were the providers. So now starvation in the land of Moab was once again the issue. And so, verse six. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Isn't that amazing? She leaves the famine over here to try to find the food over here. She gets over here. She finds destitution. And there's food back where she was originally at. There's times when I think we would be well-learned to wait upon the Lord. But she heard there was food and there was plenty of it. So she's taking her daughters-in-law with her. Do you start to see a parallel to the prodigal son here? He left. And when it got finally got bad enough, he was eating with the pigs. He realized, wait a minute, even the servants at my father's house are doing a lot better than me. I can go back just as a servant. Well, that's, that's what Naomi's seeing here. She doesn't have land. She doesn't have wealth back in Israel. But there's an abundance of crops, even the gleaners, even the people that are just picking up what's fallen on the ground are eating better than we are here in Moab. So we'll go back. So she starts to see um, an error in her way. She starts to see an error in her thinking. And so she set out, this is verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And you notice that both daughters-in-law started out with her. They arose with her and intended to travel with her. And keep this in mind, they're moving to a foreign land now. Probably had never been there. I wouldn't suspect they had ever been there. Um... A place where God, by God's command, they would be considered a cursed people. But yet they're going to get up 
and go along with Naomi back to this land. And then in verses 8 through 13, we see the fullness of Naomi's uh, bitterness. We see the fullness of her anguish. Let's read 8 through 13. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest and each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she's, we, we see somewhere Naomi, they're traveling back to Israel and she stops and she says, she tries to convince them, don't go with me. There's nothing but misery following me. She has no husbands. She has no more sons. And there's significance in that. It's not just that I have no more sons that you could marry. It's actually part of the law that if she would have had another son, then it would have been his responsibility to care for those widows of his brothers. That was commanded. But she didn't have that. She had forgotten there's another, there is another provision in the law. And it will come about. We will see it. But not yet. But she's saying, my condition's worse than yours. You're still young. You can go back to Moab. You can remarry. You can have a life there. But if you come with me, it's basically like vowing a lifelong widow state, a state of widowness. Is that a word? Widowness? She's like, don't come with me. It's terrible. All I'm going to do is go back there and try to glean enough to eat until I die. Can you see the anguish? Is there sympathy for Naomi here? I hope there is. Was there sympathy for the prodigal son when you read that story? Do you have sympathy for him? I hope you do. Because we're all him. And we're all her. In a certain sense, we've all left our homeland at times, and we have to turn, make this repentance like she's doing and go back. Spiritually speaking, we've all been through this. And she is in anguish. I mean, to think about her loss is hard enough. I mean, to, to really bring, when we read Bible, the, the history in the Bible, I think sometimes we don't grasp the reality of it. These are real people. This really happened. You know, if somebody loses a child today that you know, and a lot of us have known people that have lost children, it is one of the most detrimental things that you can see on a person's face is when they lose a child. And she just lost two and a husband. That, I mean, she is bitter, and it is rightly so. There is anguish, and it is, it is rightly so. But verse 14 says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now we start to see that little glimmer of light shining through in the anguish. We see a little ray of sun coming through the clouds in the midst of the storm. That little bit of hope in this story of bitterness. Orpah kissed Naomi, and this was a kiss goodbye. She, she said, you know what, you're right. I'm going to go back. I'm going to live my life. Naomi had convinced her to return to Moab. One of the best words in the Bible is but. Right? But God. 
But God had mercy on Ruth here, and it says, but Ruth clung to her. And that's the glimmer. That's the beginning of hope. Or actually the beginning of the sight of hope, because the hope is always there, even when we can't see it. Even when we're in our despair, even we're in, when we're in this great anguish, the hope is always there. That is Jesus Christ. He does not move. He stands solid. And the glimmer starts coming through. And 15 says, And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. One more attempt. One more attempt for her own sake. So Naomi thinks, for your own sake, go back. One more attempt to get alone in her despair. And how many times do we do that? How many times do we get into a tough situation, into a depressing situation, into some sort of sinful situation? And what do we want to do? We want to be alone. Right? How many times... Do we wind up just like Naomi, shutting everybody out, dwelling in our own self-pity? We can have sympathy for Naomi and still call her to repentance, right? It's still self-pity what she's dealing with. The focus is still on her. I have no sons. I have no husband. I have no provisions. I, I, I. And that's the danger of shutting everybody else out. We don't generally do that good a job of calling out our own sin. The Holy Spirit does. And many times he uses other people to do it. And we allow one problem to compound another when we do that. Do you think you're the first one to deal with these problems? And do you think there is not hope and a sovereign God working behind the scenes so that this will help you grow into a stronger individual and into a stronger Christian. Or maybe you find yourself in the position of Ruth and somebody's trying to push you out. Somebody's trying to push you away, trying to shut you out. How did Ruth handle that? Oh, okay, well, she doesn't want she doesn't want me. I'm just going to go. No, she clung to her. And she loved the language there. I mean, I can literally physically see her grabbing a hold of Naomi, her mother-in-law, who she obviously loved, clinging to her. She said, no way. I'm not going back. Look at and the, the best verse in this chapter. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. In spite of all the objections, in spite of the bleakest picture Naomi could have possibly painted for her, Ruth makes this amazing statement. She pledges to leave her own land and family, travel to a strange land with strange customs. She's never lived there before. She doesn't understand everything that's going on, and she's going to leave everything she knows and go with this lady who is not even her blood kin. It's her mother-in-law. And as far as she knows, she's pledging to a life of a widow and childlessness. You've got to remember in these days, children were everything. Family was everything. That was your status. That was your wealth. Everything was based on how many children you have. And now, Ruth, by everything we know, is willing to forget all of that to cling to Naomi. And, and this is especially so because she can't even marry another. With making this pledge to Ruth... As far as she knows, she can't even marry another one outside of that family because that would break her pledge to Naomi. And Naomi doesn't have any kin that she knows of. So she's making this pledge. But the most amazing part of the statement 
is you take this heathen, pagan woman from Moab. Remember the origins of Moab? Incestuous relationship, enemy of God, enemy of God's people, cursed by God for their idolatry and their pagan worship. And you take this pagan and she says, "My, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. At what point God opened her eyes, we don't know. She was very much in the same situation as the other sister-in-law, right? She was very much that they had heard the same stories. Naomi get painted the same picture for both of them, tried to push them both away. One left, one came. Why is that? Remember how we talked about God is sovereign? He has a purpose for Ruth. He has set his affection on this pagan, idolatrous woman and said no. And he started it before she was born by producing a famine in the land of Canaan, in the land of Israel, and causing these people to move out there so that she could meet her husband and so that he could die so that she could be saved. What an incredible God. He's painting this picture and we get to see it. We get to look back on this and say, wow. And this should be a strength in the midst of your trial. Because I promise you this, and this is one of the things that comes with time. This is one of the things you cannot learn in a book. You can read about them. You can read the book of Ruth. You can read testimony after testimony. But until you experience it, you don't learn it the same. God sees you through those trials every time. At what point God opened her eyes, we don't know. But she made a commitment to the one true God at this time. Probably, even though they were living in a pagan land, there was still the truth of God in their hearts Naomi and Elimelech, and they probably talked about him and taught them the things of God. And at some point, God opened her eyes with that truth. And now we see this commitment from this heathen woman who's no longer a heathen, clinging to Naomi. And as the picture we see of her clinging to Naomi is actually the picture of her clinging to God, clinging to Christ. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, clinging even when it looks as bleak as possible, clinging in the midst of the worst of times, but still clinging. The question we've got to ask ourselves when it comes to clinging to God, clinging to Christ, is, is he worth it? And, of course, the answer is yes. So she's willing to go give up all of her hopes and dreams, children, husbands, whatever life they had planned together. I'm leaving it behind just for God. And that's what we have to be willing to do. And then verse 17, it's, even, it's maybe even more profound. It goes deeper. She says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, obviously, Naomi would be expected to die before Ruth. So Ruth is saying, it doesn't even matter. If you die first, I'm staying where you go. John Piper says this commitment was more radical than marriage now. Because in this pledge, even if Naomi dies, she does not return home. She is not going home. She literally, when she says, your people will be my people and your God my God, she means it until I die. Not until you die, Naomi. No, this is a lifelong commitment for me. Why? Because God's power of salvation was on her. 
And so you can remember, you can remember, remember this in the midst of trials, and it's with a with a story line like this, it's hard to find places to stop. So I'm going to stop here because it gets better. I mean, this story, God is just getting started on this picture. He's given us some rays of sunlight, but he's going to show his glory and how he works through this providentially. Because Naomi, it still looks bleak, other than the fact that they are turned to God. But it still looks bleak, still looks like hunger and, and uh, a life of widow is still in the future, but we're going to see God continue to work, as you know if you've read the book of Ruth. But but know this, whatever trials you're in, whatever storm you're dealing with, and it could be lots of different things. It could be spiritual battles. It could be physical battles. It can be times of bleakness. There is no better place to be than in a storm if that's where Christ has you. Remember, the disciples were just as safe with the storm going on as they were when the storm was calmed. Naomi was just as safe in Israel in a famine as she was in Moab in plenty. Why? Because God had a purpose for her. And so you can trust in God in whatever trials you're dealing with that if you are looking to Him for your satisfaction and you're looking to Him for your answers and your comfort and your peace, then there's no better place to be on this earth than in that trial you're in. And He will see you through it and He will use it for the good of those who love Him and those who are called according to His purpose. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank You. Lord, uh, for for putting the book of Ruth on my heart. And I pray, God, that uh, we would once again see your glorious gospel through this Old Testament passage. As we see the Redeemer come, as we see the picture of Christ in this, as we see the picture of hope and salvation in this, that it would open our eyes even to understand your gospel more, to understand your character and nature of mercy more. Lord, I, I thank you. I thank you for this church, um, for the fellowship that we have, for the love of Christ that we share. And I pray, Lord, that we would encourage one another and that we would always point one another to you and if there's times of despair you would keep us from shutting each other out and that you would help us to press in to each other um, during those times that we would grow stronger in Christ together in his name I pray amen